Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Good afternoon, David. How are you doing today? I'm not doing too bad. Uh, I'm a, a bit better this week. I think you, you knew I had a bit of uh, a dental emergency uh, last week. I had a tooth abscess, but uh, thankfully I was able to get my, my friend Mark to do some drilling and uh, I feel I feel a lot better now. Thanks. Actually, I should point out my friend Mark is actually a qualified dentist. He's not just a bloke I know who I asked it to, to drill into my head, but uh, but no, I am I'm doing a lot better, thanks. And uh, as you know, dentists and osteoporosis specialists don't always get on, so I try not to remind him I'm an osteoporosis specialist before he starts drilling. But uh, but I was very thankful to see him and uh, doing a lot better. And how are you? How are things in Imperial? All good here at the minute, thanks. New term is well underway. Students are busy beavering away at their work. And we're working on some grant applications to put in before Christmas. It's, uh, it's a very busy, but also a very nice time of year. It's interesting what you were saying about the dentist there. We've had a lot of people getting in touch with us on Facebook and on Twitter to give us some ideas for upcoming episodes. And we've had some really good suggestions. And one that we got from Sheffield was that we should do something about dentistry and the interactions between treatments and dentistry. We've had some other suggestions about looking at development of bone, maybe looking into the relationship between anorexia and early osteoporosis. So please, everyone, do keep your suggestions coming in and we'll try and fit as many in as we can. Yeah, we've had many, many suggestions and we we really will try. If not in this series, then in in the next series, we will try to get, get around them all. And thank you to everybody who's been listening. We've picked up quite a few new listeners in the last month or so since we put out the episode with Dr. Javed. And we've got new listeners recently in Sri Lanka and also in Taiwan. So welcome to Bone Up. We also had a listen in the Cayman Islands. So if there's anybody out there who's interested in funding any bone research, drop us a line we can send you our sort code and account number. Absolutely. We'd be delighted to do that. Let's just hope it wasn't one of your friends on holiday, Richie. I don't think my mum's been to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> on with today's episode then. And we've, we've said quite a few times in the podcast before that osteoporosis is a global challenge facing the whole world. Today, we have a guest on the show who's hopefully going to give us some wider perspective about that. So I'm really excited about today's episode. David, I guess in your clinic, you're probably going to treat people from all around the world. Um, have, 
Do you see any any differences in osteoporosis or risk of osteoporosis or fractures across different populations or different ethnicities? There certainly are differences in different parts of the world. And it's one of the first things I think you learn about osteoporosis is that there are certainly uh, ethnic differences in, in, in osteoporosis and in fractures. There was some uh, publicity, I think, about five years ago now, a, a study published from Nick Harvey's group by, by our friend Beth Curtis that suggested there was a 50% higher fracture incidence in Scotland as compared with London. And there was a lot of speculation as to the causes of that, of course. There were links with, with deprivation, for example. But one of the issues that came out of that, even within a single country, even within the, the UK, uh, was the ethnic differences and the fact that older white women appear to have a 4.7 times fracture uh, risk as compared to older black women. And that's something had been known about for a time in different parts of the world, but I think it showed how it even can cause a difference within, within one country. It's been known, for example, that, that uh, black people in America have a higher fracture uh, incidence than black people living in, in Africa. And people have often wondered, is that purely a genetic uh, issue or is it related to other things, to, to lifestyle, to diet, to vitamin D, or indeed to the, to the occurrence of other diseases, for example, like HIV or, or, or TB. But it's a difficult area and it's a complex area and it's an area in which there's not necessarily as much research as, as we would like. So we know, for example, that it is quite possible to have low vitamin D levels despite the fact you live near the equator. We know that in some parts of the world, people naturally have a very low calcium intake in their diet and yet appear to have quite good bone density. Uh, there's all sorts of research ongoing and more research needed on the impact of, of HIV and, and people who are living with HIV on bone health. We know that is, is harmful to bones, but whether that's related to the chronic inflammation of the disease or to the treatment of the disease remains, I, I think, an area still uh, of uncertainty. And just as we look around the world and we see life expectancy increasing in a lot of lower and middle income countries, so the longer people live, the greater number of years there are postmenopausally for them to develop osteoporosis and fracture. And therefore, some people have said as, as, as life expectancy and standard of living improves, more osteoporosis is in, in, perhaps inevitable. But these are complex areas. And as I say, there's still huge gaps in research and huge gaps in our understanding. And today, we might be able to drill down into some of those gaps and at least look into the research which is currently being delivered to try and fill in those gaps for us and help us to tackle the global challenge of osteoporosis. So without further ado, we better move on to our guest today. And we're very excited to announce that we have Professor Kate Ward from the University of Southampton. And just to emphasize what a wonderful guest we have today, I'd just like to have a quick run through of Professor Ward's job titles. Okay. First up, Professor of Global Musculoskeletal Health, Co-Director of the Sub-Saharan Africa Musculoskeletal Network, Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the MRC Gambia Unit in the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Professor at the MRC Life Course Epidemiology Center, 
Director of the NIHR Southampton Global Nutrition Research Group and Honorary Associate Professor at the University of Witterstrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. Prof Ward, it's great to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for coming. It's a wonder you have time to do all those jobs, uh, let alone find time to join the <laughs> podcast. So we really do appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, yeah, I think we're taking a lot of man hours out of the osteoporosis research community doing this podcast. <laughs> so Prof Ward, we're really excited to have you today because we're constantly telling our audience that osteoporosis is a global disease of global importance. But so far on the show, we've mostly focused on the UK perspective and being interview, interviewing guests from the UK. So it's going to be really nice today to, to demonstrate that global perspective. And I've wanted to talk to you about your work ever since I saw you speak at the board's BRS conference in 2019, where you had a plenary lecture about your work in the Gambia. And there's a lot for us to go through today, but I suppose the best place to begin is to ask if you would just give us a quick outline of the work that you're doing studying fragility and fracture prevention in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, sure. Um, so briefly, well, as my as my job title suggests, I work at Life Course Epidemiology in Southampton as my predominant predominant role. And Life Course research is really where I've always um, focused my work, particularly during adolescence and the later years. And so, in terms of global health, I've worked in the Gambia since two thousand and eight when I was in Cambridge in my previous role and focus very much on understanding how bones develop healthily, how we develop peak bone mass in order to prevent fractures, but then in the latter years looking at fragility fractures and understanding the epidemiology and risk factors for fractures in later life. And, and that's really where I am today. Fantastic. I suppose when thinking about uh, sub-Saharan Africa then, an important question how prevalent is the disease osteoporosis? I think we we know very little. There are there are certain pockets of work, um, such as the National Osteoporosis Foundation in in South Africa, and the research groups in the Gambia of my, myself and Zimbabwe of Celia Gregson. Um, as an example, in the Gambia, in the most recent work I've done in the Gambian bone ageing study, or GAMBAS, as we like to call it, um, the prevalence of osteoporosis in women there is about 20%. So that's, that's just to give you an idea. There are many risk factors for osteoporosis that, that are similar to that that we see here, such as ageing and low BMI. But what also occurs um, or co-occurs in sub-Saharan Africa it, are diseases such as HIV, which are very highly prevalent and, and are probably changing the, the epidemiology and the, um, the occurrence of osteoporosis and, and fragility as populations age. And, and I think that's really the key thing about the, the whole continent is that it's really sub-Saharan Africa is the only region in the world where population growth is predicted to keep rising throughout this century. And so the, the greatest proportion of older people in the world will live in sub-Saharan Africa, which is why it's now a very relevant and timely, um, timely time to take action in terms of fragility fractures and, and aging healthily 
across the board. So sarcopenia, osteoporosis as well. It's interesting that you mention that because often when I think of osteoporosis in sub-Saharan Africa, I immediately think of things like like HIV and treatment for HIV and different types of nutrition and life experiences. And I was just wondering how similar osteoporosis is. So how much, for example, does HIV contribute and how much is it still the traditional risk factors that we would appreciate, such as family history and, and, and other things like that? I think I think you make a, a really good point. I think we, we don't know fully. I think the with the improving treatments for HIV, HIV is now considered a chronic disease of ageing. And so we're only now starting to see populations who are living very successfully with HIV and other comorbidities getting to the age where we'd normally see osteoporosis start to occur. So in terms of understanding fracture prevalence and the impact it has, we don't yet know that. Um, There is certain data from elsewhere across the globe that suggests that fracture prevalence is higher in in individuals with HIV. But certainly as as part of our our new research, um, we will be looking at that in much more detail in, in Zimbabwe and South Africa. In terms of family history, we're talking about countries where life expectancy has been relatively low compared to what we'd expect. Of course, with the epidemiological transitions we're seeing, which differ across the continent as well. Um, we're now seeing life expectancy rising um, quite significantly. And so I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to get a much better idea about those risk factors and and what we might do to prevent the disease. Yeah, it's interesting thinking of FRAX, for example. One of the strongest components of FRAX is a parental history of hip fracture. But obviously, if life expectancy is is quite limited, then the chances of having parental hip fracture, I presume, are much less than if the life expectancy is is maybe uh, seventy or eighty. Do you find FRAX useful in, in in that in that sense, or is it not as useful? So until recently, FRAX hasn't been calibrated to sub-Saharan Africa, but, mm-hmm. but work okay. with the FRAX team together, well, led by um, Sap Nadella and Bilkish Kasim in South Africa. There's now a model for FRAX in South Africa. And I believe the risk factors are still the same as, as in our FRAX, as we would see here. It's also been calibrated to Zimbabwe and um, I think Botswana and Kenya. So FRAX, the use of FRAX is growing or the availability. Um, and I think with that, again, it will give us much more, a much better idea about those risk factors and, and how, um, again, how prevention of the disease might occur. With the HIV risk factor, is it the disease that is a risk factor or is it the antiretroviral drugs that people take to treat HIV? I think it's multifactorial. Um, We did some work quite a few years ago now in premenopausal women with and without HIV and looked at people who had just initiated antiretroviral therapy. And so at the beginning, the bone mineral density, um, which we'd use as our measure and an outcome to understand what's happening to the bone, bone mineral density was similar in those women with HIV and without HIV. When we gave, when they started the ART treatment, they had a significant loss of bone. 
which then reached a, a sort of a steady state after 18 months to two years, which suggests that the antiretroviral therapy might be one of the big drivers. But of course, there's the chronic inflammation. There are the comorbidities that are associated with the disease as well. Um, in children as well, I know we're not focusing on that right now, but in children, the growth is poorer in children with H living with HIV and on antiretroviral treatment. So I think it's multifactorial. It's, it's very difficult to, to pick out one factor, but it's certainly, um, certainly a significant factor that we need to consider. The, the follow-on then from asking, are the causes of osteoporosis similar in sub-Saharan Africa, is asking, are the consequences similar so we're all used to the figures let's say in the uk if you suffer a hip fracture there's a 20 percent one year mortality if you have a hip fracture i think it's less than 50 percent of people are independently mobile out of doors what's the picture then in, in the areas in which you work for example in, in the gambia what effect does having a fracture have on your ability to work your role in society what availability is there of orthopedic care so formally, I can't give you any figures for the Gambia. Um, what I can say is that that the orthopaedic care is growing. There are, I think, currently between four to six orthopaedic surgeons in the Gambia. It's a very small population, um, but the healthcare and resources, of course, are challenged across the continent. It, that's not that's not unique to the, the Gambia. Um, but the consequences are that it's very difficult and very expensive to access hip replacements, materials for um, materials for successful recovery. There's often a, a long delay to operation, which of course, um, of course, we know here has a significant impact on the outcomes. People in the Gambia, there, there's a big um cohort of traditional bone setters and so people often for any musculoskeletal condition would consult them first and so that that may or may not impact outcomes and so I think I think all of your questions so far point to the fractures e3 study which is um, a collaboration led by Celia Gregson from Bristol um, together with myself and Bilkish Kasim in, in South Africa, Rashida Farand in Zimbabwe and Landing Jarju in, in the Gambia. And that with that, we're going to study in, in much more detail the impact of hip fractures. We're going to look at hip fracture incidents. We're going to look at vertebral fracture prevalence in Gambia and um, Zimbabwe in South Africa. We're going to look at the health economics and look at a service availability and readiness readiness um, assessment and also and I think very importantly look at the individuals and the barriers and facilitators to them accessing services and and how those pathways actually work in our different contexts. Um, I think one of the things that my personal research has led to for me is is understanding that that one size doesn't fit all and we can't assume that what we know here applies um, elsewhere. And I think it's the same in the Gambia it's, or, or sub-Saharan Africa. The continent is, is so vast. Gambia is one of the poorest countries in the world and one of the least transitioned, whereas South Africa is a middle-income country, um, much more healthcare provision. 
with different barriers, facilitators and risk factors. So that's that's really when we put the programme together, why we wanted to look at the different countries to be able to take a, a broad approach to the context we're, we're researching. This sounds like the biggest audit I've ever heard of. <laughs> Trans-country, continental level audit. That's amazing. It's it's an it's exciting. It's daunting, I must say, Richie. Um, it's daunting and very ambitious. We're fortunate to have the platforms that we can. We've in the Gambia. I've got two um, DEXA machines, and I've got peripheral quantitative computer tomography. So the the techniques that we can use to really study bones and look at their shape and their design in much more detail, and that's what we'll do in the vertebral fracture study. But I think. I think the mixed methods that we'll be using and the teams that we've assembled across across the UK and across Africa just present such an opportunity. Um, I think I'm not sure I'd describe it as an audit, but I think it, I think um, I think it just presents that opportunity and platform for us to to really um, try to make a difference to care a, a, across the countries we're look, we're looking at, and hopefully wider. So how do the mechanics of the research work? Is it easy to travel to Africa and then travel around Africa to get to the communities and get people DEXA scanned? I know in the UK, for example, a lot of patients here don't get DEXA scans because it's difficult to get to hospitals. Car parking fees are expensive. Public transport is very poor. How do you, how do you cope with those kind of problems? Well, we have it's it, it, we have very good teams. We have you know in country teams, so all of the research is led without that with by them. So there'd be no way you could do this. Sit, you know, sat in a university in the UK trying to to govern it all. So we have very experienced teams who in the Gambia. Um, my team are based in a rural site. It's they're both medical research council Gambia sites. Um, and so the teams engage communities. There's a lot of sensitization of communities about why we want to do the research, why we think it's important. Um, and so we work up the research with them. Um, it's interesting, the, the GAMBAS study, which is a predecessor to Fractures E3, um, we, we never did many studies in men. We often, we look at mothers and children to understand quite rightly maternal and child mortality. And the men started to say, look, why don't you ever talk to us? And why don't you ever try and understand what's happening, you know, with our health? And so that Gambas came along and, and we did, of course, because of male osteoporosis being such a, a prevalent issue in the UK and, and elsewhere, we added men into the into the mix, which was great. That presented its own challenge. There's, the, there's many sort of cultural and social challenges to studying in these countries. And that's why you just have to have the team that's committed and, and dedicated and, and um, able to engage and work with the communities. It's, it's vital. It sounds like this is a really wonderful project guided by the patients and the people towards the healthcare they need. Yeah, I think more and more so. I mean, I could go completely off-piste and talk about the, another hat that I wear um, in the Global Nutrition Group, but but I think engaging communities and understanding what they want and what they need and 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 
their um, understanding or prioritisation of what you want is is absolutely crucial. I think it's across research now. It's really important. We see it at the Royal Osteoporosis Society um, in the NIHR here. The the role of the patient in in directing research and helping researchers understand what's important to them is is invaluable. Is there greater potential, do you feel, for preventing osteoporosis and fracture in, in lower and middle income countries than, than we'd maybe see here in the UK? You know, so many of our patients have passed their peak bone mass. We're trying to reverse decline. It strikes me a lot of the work you're doing is still at the preventative end. You're talking about adolescents and young people and mothers and babies where uh, but or do you maybe just face the same barriers as, as as we would face in the UK for example in preventing osteoporosis I think the the, the barriers and and challenges are the understanding again of the risk factors or what we need to do um, some of the research where you know where I started in the Gambia was it was all based around very low calcium intakes. Well, if a population has a very low calcium intake, surely what you need to do is increase their calcium intake and prevent fractures, which is what we do here. The complete paradox in in Africa is that there are very low calcium intakes, but the fracture incidence is much much lower, and that's the same for children as it as it is for adults. Um, I think there are opportunities because we are trying to to gain an understanding of of growth and a better understanding of adolescent growth and how how you can I guess empower adolescents to make choices of their own again that's happening in the UK but also in Africa and so guiding around health in general, I don't think you can just. I don't think you can really just take bone by itself in isolation or, or cognition. I think it's taking that approach to, to health as in general and um, and in you know, optimizing growth, optimizing child um, outcomes to be able to prevent um, osteoporosis through improvements in peak bone mass. So I think it's complex. And wonderful. You mentioned that that paradox. <laughs> you mentioned that sort of paradox, which I think is reasonably well known. That often in sub-Saharan Africa, there's quite low calcium intake, but you wouldn't see the severity of osteoporosis and fractures you might expect. Is there something else which is is correcting for that? So, for example, is is physical activity or more more physically active lifestyles correcting for that, or is it a genetic? genetic elements that are correcting for that or or is it complex (laughs) it's complex I think um I do think I mean I I think I think there's there's an adaptation to that low calcium intake it means a different thing because the population has evolved to survive on the on the nutrition that it has and so a low a very low calcium intake in the Gambia means something very different to a teenager or an an adult here having 300 milligrams of calcium a day which is about the average in the Gambia across the population. Um, I think there are hints that there are adaptations in the parathyroid hormone axis and and absorption of calcium and we've we've recently seen differences in adaptations to pregnancy between UK and, and the Gambia as well so I think I think the body 
the body's a, a remarkable thing to adapt to that situation. I think one of the challenges that that's presented as as countries transition and availability of food changes and variability of food or quality of, of food choices happens. I think that's the challenge because the populations are adapted to to you know what they have but then as things change or proportions change then that that might then become a risk factor in in later life so necessarily increasing calcium intake across the gambia may not improve the outcome in terms of osteoporosis or no. or fractures in fact it could no. potentially have negative consequences on other aspects of health yeah that is potentially that is yeah mm. certainly in our work in children and the intervention studies there wasn't that lasting effect of of calcium supplementation that that you would expect it it changed the timing of puberty but it didn't really have a a a, a positive benefit on bone density it's amazing that you're studying developmental health as well as aging at the same time that must be an incredibly difficult project to pull off is it possible, going back to David, what David was saying earlier on, that if you do have a much better handle on development and the effects of development on bone disease, that you would be able to set up a system for very early prevention of bone disease in old age? Well, we, yeah, I mean, there's there's been quite a lot of work from cohorts here in the UK, like the Hertfordshire cohort study, Um I've done some work with the National Survey of Health and Development, which is a 1946 birth cohort and work that um, has also been done by Southampton in Helsinki shows that that trajectory of growth and the way that you transition through puberty impacts peak bone mass. And that peak bone mass then impacts later fracture risk. Now, that's that's a study that, you know, now you don't have the opportunity to really get those birth cohorts and follow them all the way through. But for sure, the way people gain weight, gain height, and as I said, transition through puberty, whatever is optimal for that population is probably going to have an impact on their later life. Together, of course, with environment and factors such as vitamin D status and and nutrition, physical activity as well. Vitamin D status is obviously another interesting topic. Um, some people imagine that vitamin D status is, is great in sub-Saharan Africa and that vitamin D deficiency doesn't exist. But have you any insights on, on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a really nice review um, last year. I can't remember the name of it, which doesn't help you. Um, that show, I mean, there's there's quite a paucity of data in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. But the there is a... There is, prevalence of rickets is calcium deficiency or calcium and vitamin D deficiency rickets in younger children. Um, There's quite a lot of work in Nigeria on that from Tom Thatcher and and John Pettifor. Um, And the vitamin D status in the Gambia is is pretty good. Gambia, for the listeners, is just north of the equator. So it's it's, um, tropical climate, It's, it's seasonal, but vitamin D status is is adequate, you know, the, the levels are, are what we um, consider healthy here. Um, in the more seasonal climates, in the more southern Africa, uh, vitamin D deficiency does occur. Um, I don't know, there's a there's a quite a lack of data in adolescents and older people, so I can't 
think off the top of my head of figures figures for them but but certainly I think also clothing choices and of course darker skins impact the the absorption of vitamin d as well so 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 certainly there are populations where and and populations within those populations where vitamin d deficiency is is a an issue and certainly something we want to look at in terms of risk factors for for older people's musculoskeletal health so it sounds as though the the risk factors in sub-saharan africa are much more complicated there might be a lot more variation within populations especially between countries uh, possibly would there be more of an impact of developmental health on health in old age in the sub-saharan populations than perhaps in the uk um that's a very good question um i don't i suppose with osteoporosis research has been happening for so long here i can remember debates about risk factors when i first started in this field quite a long time ago <laughs> um and i think the the complexity of risk factors and the evolution of risk factors is still occurring here for example if you looked at people who were you know with obesity the the profile for fractures is very different but they might be at risk of of lower trauma fractures than we'd have previously thought they might be so in in sub-saharan africa i think there there are a lot of unknowns of course as i said earlier the the aging population is is increasing rapidly and with that there are changes in um there's changes in housing with the transition there's changes in roads there's changes in traffic use the number of of higher trauma fractures and road traffic accidents i know in the, in the gambia is a, a massive um concern to the healthcare system because of that accessibility now to transportation so i think it's it's almost like there's more of a rapid changes rapid changes happening in in the environment that will need to be dealt with for the old for older people to prevent fractures than than maybe we've seen as a more general evolution here over hundreds of years um i think i think wherever you you research or look at musculoskeletal health i think we often there is that often that thing that um, or the assumption that one size does fit all and and it's something that I've probably annoyed people with many many times talking about it and I know I know you know Anne's group who I, I worked with in Cambridge often said it and that one size really doesn't fit all wherever you are um, and it's whether you're in the US on the west coast east coast you know midwest or or in the uk in cornwall or aberdeen i think there's there's always there's always that range that needs to be considered when you're thinking about environment and risk factors i'm absolutely in awe of the size and complexity of this project osteoporosis on its own is a complicated problem it sounds like there's so much variation between countries, between populations, and the patterns of those variation are going to be constantly changing, probably for generations. It's my it's mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. It is. Do you have any ideas about how you might be able to bring this research to bear for 
for the people? Any ideas about how you might be able to use the data and information that you're collecting to develop or change clinical practice to improve outcomes? The key thing for Fractures E3 will be engagement with policymakers, both nationally and internationally. So we've already, within each of our countries, engaged with Ministry of Health. And depending on how the healthcare systems are organised, um, talk to regional directorates, to individual healthcare centres in the Gambia. Traditional bone setters are a very big part of, of the research that we'll do. And so I think the, the primary thing will be to have some have data that we can provide to them about pathways of care that their patients have and what might be might be possible to um to improve care within the within the um within the limits of of what they're able to do so i think that's probably one of the first things i think i would hope that we would be able to get some education um or it's sort of engagement activities with communities um, for for them to understand healthy aging and what's happening within their, you know, with their relatives and and the importance or the possibilities that might present in terms of recovery and an older person having a quality of life, um, helping them return to work. I think David asked me about that earlier in terms of productivity, and so giving options to people with osteoporosis or poor mobility that are that are achievable and will support them and and just give back that quality of life that that we know is possible from all of the work that's that's done here yeah one of the great things about increasing life expectancy is i suppose people then need to prepare for longer life and and think about it it's it's something we've talked about a lot in, in that you know you put put money in the bank when you're younger so that it's there well you can do that literally for your pension of course to prepare for older age but certainly in times of in terms of your bones as well but that's maybe just a mindset as, as life expectancy increases then we, we need to plan for health in in older age as well and um you know if things are complex or confusing it's just because we don't have enough data yet uh, and hopefully you're going a long way to to resolving that problem hopefully <laughs> Hopefully. How does it feel to be running such a large and important and potentially incredibly impactful project in the world? Well, I, Fractures E3, Celia, Professor Celia Gregson from Bristol is the, is the PI. So I guess the book stops with her. <laughs> um, in terms of the... In terms of the Gambia project, and I and I know, um, the the Gambia projects I find um, intensely rewarding. In terms of, you know, I'm a researcher. I fell in love with research 30 years ago, and and I've been fortunate that I've been able to evolve questions and and make them relevant as times progressed. Um, it is daunting. It is daunting, but I think. I think the greatest pleasure you get is in knowing that you are building teams, you're helping to build capacity in an area that's that's under resourced, um, and that you're you see the growth in in people and groups and and that you can really 
hopefully have an impact on communities. We're not, I'm not there yet in terms of the, the community changing what's happening. But I think that building and growing the research and recruiting, I recruited a new PhD student um, three weeks ago and just starting, you know, that time in a PhD's life where you're starting to plan the questions and start to engage them and try and give them that enthusiasm for research. It's, it, it's very rewarding. The most amazing thing is that by setting up the in-country teams, you're going to build a legacy potentially of generations of researchers and scientists who are going to be addressing osteoporosis. It's amazing. Just amazing. Hopefully. Hopefully. At some point, we're going to have to get you back on so you can give us an update <laughs> on the project. And I think we're going to need to talk to some of the other members as well. Yeah, that would be really good, actually, to hear, because we know you're still at the the early stages of a lot of this work. Yes. So it'd be really exciting to uh, to see what comes comes from it and, and, you know, even maybe hear some voices somewhere from from the people who are actually, uh, you know, taking part in, in, in the research, you know, people from the Gambia or Zimbabwe or South Africa even to somehow just hear hear what it's like from that from that side of the research that would be a really exciting thing to do as well I'm sure we could facilitate that and that that yeah be delighted to help with that every time we do a podcast we come up with at least two more podcast ideas <laughs> that's good <laughs> it is that, that that is it's really good yeah. and most of them come from talking to our guests and just uh how interesting and exciting it is to talk about, about bone health with people from different perspectives. This research goes beyond interesting and exciting and into inspirational. <laughs> That's very kind, Richie. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you both as well and looking forward to to coming back it's been really really great and thank you for making making the time i know you've had to even cancel a meeting this afternoon to speak to us so we really do appreciate that and the wi-fi stood up at the end <laughs> that's great thank you kid bye-bye bye, bye. bye. wow that was awe-inspiring the size and scope and the impact of that research is enormous. It is. It's what uh, what Professor Javed was saying to us just in the last podcast about how you can treat one person in front of you and make a difference to that person. He mentioned you can you can change a guideline or change a government policy and make a difference to tens of thousands of people. But potentially, the work that that Kate and her colleagues is doing here has the potential to change the health of of hundreds of millions of people and 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 have a legacy that would go through generations right across africa uh, it's it's as you say just the, the scope of it is is really fantastic and the idea that because each country is different the problems the barriers and the solutions might be slightly different in each country on top of that to think that they are engaging many governments at the same time in their research is incredible. When we did the leadership training with the Royal Osteoporosis Society, we should tell the listeners one of the 
one of the, um, the programs that we did, we got taken to the Houses of Parliament for a couple of days and we met lords and we met civil servants and we met MPs and we practiced trying to engage with them, pitch ideas with them, try and get them interested in osteoporosis and the problems. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this is hard. You know, they have so many demands on them. It's going to be hard for us to be heard. To think that Kate and the wider team are doing that with many, many governments at the same time. It's incredible. The amount of communication is enormous. Absolutely. Wow. And it wasn't interesting too how she talked about it's so important to engage people where they are. So, for example, she said people have a lot of trust in in the traditional bone setters, let's say, in Gambia. And therefore, it was really important to have, have people uh, people involved in that uh, sort of as part of, of, of your project and, and to involve them and to um, to reference them as, as part of it. it. It was so many challenges um, and yet they have such a, they're so positive and so optimistic about being able to do this work. Yeah, we touched a little bit in the interview on the patient involvement. Yeah. But really, really this project goes way beyond that to engaging whole communities whole communities, health healers, the clinical community, the local people, like, and the in-country teams. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think one of my big take-home messages will be just what she said, that one size doesn't fit all. And just because we think we understand bone health and osteoporosis, you know, in, in a higher income setting, those things do not necessarily apply to countries with lower and, and middle incomes. Um, even something simple like the fact that calcium in the diet tends to be quite low in sub-Saharan Africa, but that is not associated with the rates of osteoporosis and fracture you might expect to see, let's say, in the UK or North America. And therefore, by consequence of that, increasing the calcium in the diet does not necessarily have the same effects as, as, as you would see um, in some of the research done, let's say, in Europe. And just how we need to really go back to square one. And so much of the data they're getting at the moment is, is, is it's so exciting. It's so interesting that they're really taking nothing for granted and, and, and they're, they're starting really at, at the bottom and looking at, at the prevalence of fractures, prevalence of osteoporosis and looking at all these all these different risk factors, um, as I say, on the basis that, that one size doesn't fit all. And uh, and just also looking, I mean, she mentioned about, about educating people and particularly younger people to have autonomy over their health and to realise that they can actually make a difference to their health, not just now, but have an impact on their health in in the future and, and as they as the life expectancy increases and even impact upon their their fracture risk as they get older which is something we were saying to people saying to people in the clinic that i work in and it's it's relevant as you can say all across the world i think as a scientist my takeaway is that Kate and the wider team might rewrite our understanding of bone and bone health and rewrite our understanding of how bone develops and how bone ages, especially in terms of how much variation there might be across the world. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Really amazing. 
And it's made me think about how I engage the people around me, how I engage with patients, how I engage with clinicians, how I engage with my research teams. And it's going to make me think about what I can do better and how I can improve. Yeah. Uh, I, just that idea of having a legacy that 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 could extend to over over tens and hundreds of millions of people for generations to come it's 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 really wonderful work that's being done and uh, certainly on on behalf of the podcast we wish them every success and we uh, we look forward to hearing more about it uh, in future absolutely we definitely have to get some of the team members on for an update that would be really good Okay, we better say goodbye to everybody now. Thank you for listening today. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll speak to you all again soon. Goodbye. Bye now.